want to start off this morning by telling you about a church named Mars Hill. It's founded in 1996 in the city of Seattle, one of the most unchurched cities in the nation, as far as big churches, big cities go. And started out as simply a Bible study in a couple's home. Very humble beginnings. But within several years, they grew into a multi-site church with over 15 church site locations in five states. Their weekly attendance was over 15,000 people. And on top of that, 200, no, excuse me, yeah, 260,000 people would tune in and listen and view the sermon online every week. 260,000 people from outside their church would view their sermon online because of the powerful, unapologetic way that the gospel was preached. Through Mars Hill Church, they launched what was called the Acts 29 Network. Some of you are familiar with it. It is a network of, uh, to equip church plants and church planters. And as of today, they've raised over 750 churches on six continents. Mars Hill Church also launched a ministry called The Resurgence to train people in ministry, both lay people and pastors, to train them for, with theology and with books and conferences and leadership. And it grew to be one of the most influential forces in evangelical Christianity in the 2000s until its spiraling collapse in 2014. And in fact, within one year's time, it officially disbanded as a church, as a church network by 2015. How does that happen? When you see a church on the upswing and God using people powerfully. Well, it turns out that the founder of the church, the lead pastor, came under fire for angry and abusive leadership without any accountability. And those accusations started coming fast and furiously with increasingly from numbers of members, ex-members, and even ex-pastors of this major church network, testifying to the flaws in this brilliantly gifted man's character. You see, there are many things that can destroy a church that's on the upswing. There's external en enemies. There can be internal division. But nothing will shipwreck a church, the work, and the glory of God more quickly than when those who serve the Lord lack personal integrity. And so the question is, how does that happen, and how do we prevent it? Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 5. We are in this series called Restore. We have been going through this book as we learn about how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what is broken. And we see in the book of Nehemiah that when God does it, it's not simply replacing broken parts with other faulty, potentially broken parts. But when God builds something, he builds something new, something better. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the gospel. And so this is a picture of the gospel in our lives and for us. And we've learned in chapters 1 through 3 that God gave Nehemiah a conviction for the suffering city in need of a Savior. And that with prayer and planning and preparation, he cast this vision for the people of God to work at rebuilding both the physical and spiritual walls of their families and their communities together. And then in chapters 4 and 5, they encounter threats from outside the church and from within the family of God, 
and they respond prayerfully and practically. But today what we're going to see is they encounter a third threat to the work and the people of God. What if the threats to the work and glory of God isn't external, it isn't internal, but it's personal? When we, as we serve the Lord, are tempted to take shortcuts to our integrity. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, in the 32nd year uh, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Let's stop right there. And so in verse 14, we learn that King Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, he actually appointed Nehemiah as governor over this entire region of Judea. That means that as governor, he has the authority and the ability to make demands on the people to support him and his work in his official capacity. And that would include paying the governor's salary. That would include being able to command people instead of asking people to do the work of rebuilding. And it says in this passage, he also had the right to exact a tax for the cost of the meals to feed him and his staff. And we saw in the last passage, for those of you who were here last week, that there was a huge protest that erupted amongst the Jewish people against the wealthy in their midst for putting their self-interest first. Remember? Putting their own brothers in debt and in slavery. And so there's this huge protest against that. But here what we see is that there's also a temptation for Nehemiah to take advantage of his situation as well. But the difference is, as the governor, it's actually kind of accepted and even expected practices that we saw practiced by all of his predecessors of, as governors, that they would seize a generous compensation for their high level of responsibilities. So the difference was, last time, people were outraged because it was clearly wrong. But here, these are kind of the normal political practices of the governors, that all the extreme of governors before Nehemiah. But then Nehemiah responds, but I did not do so. Why? Not simply because he was a good man, he is. Not simply because he's compassionate towards people, he is. But first and foremost, it says in verse 15, because of the fear of God. In other words, he's asking himself the question, if I really love and revere and worship and serve the Lord, would what I do, would this action please him? That even if it's acceptable by the law, is it ethical to the Lord? And so the big idea this morning, if you don't remember anything else, is that we are to revere God as we serve him in our work, in our church, in our families, in our communities, by doing what's humbly sacrificial, not just what's personally permissible. Let's tease that out a little bit, because the issue here is having integrity in the responsibilities that God has given us as a reflection of our faith and our reverence for God. And I know that seems simple enough, but here's the real test. How do you respond under moments of pressure? You see, 
Nehemiah, he took on this massive project to rebuild the physical and spiritual walls of the city of Jerusalem and its people. And this pressure is compounded upon him by external dangers from the enemies of God, internal division in the family of God. He has a lot of headaches as well as personal distraction because of the great influence and affluence that the king is offering him as a governor. And I don't know about you, but in that situation, I would be tempted to think about, well, you know what? I work hard and I play hard. And for all I do, don't I deserve a little bit more? I don't have to be super greedy, but don't I deserve a little bit more than the average bearer? Why shouldn't I take advantage of the perks and the practices of my position? You see, with all the pressure that's upon him, what happens is that pressure will reveal to us the cracks in our integrity, the things that you and I are willing to rationalize and compromise. And so, in a fast-growing ministry, you may think that, you know what? I've earned, I deserve this attention or the advantages of, of being in this ministry that's doing all these kinds of things. And we can make it more about me as a leader instead of Jesus as the Savior. In a high-pressure job where you have a lot of responsibilities, you're accomplishing a lot of great things, there's an allure to misuse company money, company property, a flexible schedule. Wonder how you use your your business lunches sometimes, questionable write-offs for your business, shady insider information practices. I deserve it. I work hard. My job is hard. In a hard season of your family or in your marriage, when there's conflict or challenges, we start to prioritize our own comfort and our own security and start to see family as enemy. You see, there are many things that normally you would not seek, but under pressure, we come to believe, I can have it, I deserve to have it. So when we're tempted to take shortcuts or enjoy kickbacks, even if it's offered to you as a perk of your position, the question that you and I need to ask the Lord and His Word is, Lord, there's a lot of things that I can do. Is this something that I should do? Now, I know that's pretty simple, but practically, what does that actually look like in your life and mine? Well, we're going to see that Nehemiah's integrity is reflecting his reverence for God in three very specific ways as he serves the Lord in whatever capacity that might look like. Let's look more closely at verse 15 for a second. We see that the previous governors, they taxed the people 40 shekels of silver from the people every day for their meal budget. What that means is, let me give you some context. That is approximately 12 to 20 months of wages for the average person, 40 shekels of silver. So that's how much the average person who's paying this stuff would earn in about a year, maybe almost two years for for those with uh, lower paying jobs. And that's what was being demanded by the previous governors every day. Nehemiah recognizes how much his predecessors took advantage of their position and their people to benefit themselves. But he notes, it laid a heavy burden on the people daily. In other words, he recognizes, even if the perks and the practices are permissible, they start to cross a line of sinful when they cause the suffering of other people. (coughs) Excuse me. That for Nehemiah and all who follow Jesus back then and today, that we are called to love and serve the Lord by how we love and serve people. 
And so a good starting point for us practically from Nehemiah is that just like him, he honors God by not exploiting people and circumstances for personal gain. I know you're thinking, well, well, I know that. And yet, and yet, the world often tells us, how can the people in the situation serve me? But Nehemiah responds, how can I serve the situation and the people? The world tells us, what can I get out of this? And Nehemiah says, what can I give up in this for the work and the glory of God? And it reminds me of Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Jesus says to his people, you know, the world tells us all this one thing, and Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so we need to remember that life in Christ is not about what can I get, but what can I give because of what I already have in Christ. I don't exploit people. Maybe not overtly. You may not overtly use and abuse people. But I want you to think about covertly. Do you think about people as an object or a resource for my gain at their expense? That when I can get something out of someone. So let's take a little test of our hearts for a moment. When there's work to be done, you're being asked for help. Do you look for an angle? What's in it for me? Or what favor will that person owe me? How does this advance my standing? How does this advance my career? That's an exploitation mentality. When your growth group or your church are facing challenges and ask you to step up to the plate and serve in some way, yes, but... What do I really get out of church or my growth group? Why should I bother coming and supporting them? A lot of times we look at church like as a consumer, as something that we consume and get and receive rather than what we come, come to worship and give to the Lord. When your marriage or your family is falling apart and the, your family members are begging you to work together, well, what do I get out of it? That's an exploitation mentality, and you need to repent. Now, what we're seeing here, this is all preventative to refrain from evil. How do we proactively revere and serve the Lord? Look at verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. This is what I love about Nehemiah, this guy, you know? While many people had their businesses and homes foreclosed during the famine that we saw in chapter 5, verse 3, he doesn't take advantage and swoop in, paying pennies on the dollar to invest in his own future real estate portfolio. And we talked about that last week. While others are leaving their farms and their families behind to work on the wall and staying in the city. Remember last week? Nehemiah, he's not retiring to his governor's office, to his lofty ivory tower, kicking back and enjoying the perks of being the governor. Let the, the, let the little people do the work. He also rolls up his sleeves in verse 16, picks up his trowel, gets his hands dirty, and recruits his staff to do the same thing, 
working not apart from, not above, but shoulder to the shoulder along with the brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, it's easy for us when the work is in front of us to make excuses. Well, I'm tired and I'm busy. I don't have the time or the skill or the work seems a little bit beneath me. And so we oftentimes allow others to work without doing it ourselves and sitting back and enjoying the benefits and the credit and the temptation for Nehemiah, and if we're honest, for ourselves, is to see some work as beneath us or the effort required as above, too far above us, so I don't want to get involved. So the question is, what keeps Nehemiah humble and sacrificial? When he sees what, doing, what he's doing at church or at work or in his family or in his community as serving God, not just a job, that what he does to serve the church and his work, to serve families and communities, is a reflection of his reverence for the Lord. You see, when he has that kind of mindset, then he's able to live out Paul's words in Colossians 3, verse 23, that says, work at it with whatever you do. So we're talking about not just your job. Sometimes we only read that passage as if it's only about work. But whatever you do, working at your job, at school, in to improve your marriage or your family, in the church. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though for the Lord, not for men. And so like Nehemiah, we proactively honor God by sacrificially working alongside others, that we don't just sit back and watch others do the stuff. We roll up our sleeves and say, this is not beneath me or the effort is not above me. I can come alongside you and do the work. And it reminds me of the gospel because just as Jesus, the God who became a man, he comes down to earth, comes alongside us to do the work we couldn't do alone, to make us holy, to make us right with God. And then he sacrificially suffered the death we should have died for our sins, to give us the gift that we cannot earn, eternal life and a reconciled relationship with God forever. And so we reflect and revere the God of grace by coming alongside others sacrificially, just as Jesus does. Two weeks ago, our brother Alan Wan informed me that, uh, that he was contacted by the delivery company for these chairs, that the new worship chairs were showing up the next day. And so that was uh, on a Thursday afternoon. And that when the delivery truck showed up, they would not unload these 353 chairs uh, that we had to do it ourselves. And so Alan and I scrambled to get the word out. Hey, guys, we are desperate for help tomorrow. Oh, and by the way, it's in the middle of your work day in the afternoon, so can you take some time off from work and come down? We're pretty nervous. I, I won't lie. And I was shocked that there were over 40 volunteers who showed up, half from the crossing, the English-speaking ministry at this church, half from our Chinese-speaking congregation, like literally 40 people and people representing both sides of our church. And so you and I, we are literally sitting here in this new worship center today because of people who are humble, who sacrificed their time, time to get their hands dirty, and who humbly worked alongside others. Sacrifice, humility. And the temptation for you and I is, when we put in a lot of hours and effort and exertion for our jobs, our, our ministry, our family, that we want to just take a break, let others handle it for a while. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
It's good and holy to rest and to Sabbath and, and to enjoy things. And a lot of times for many of us, when there's stressful work to be done uh, in our families or in our ministries, that we don't want you to be a lone ranger or a lone worker in the family of Christ. So take a break, but just don't make it permanent. Many of us are sitting on the sidelines watching other people do the sacrifice when we ourselves are called to roll up our sleeves. And I've told you before, you know this, every single one of us sitting in this room, you have a limited capacity. And you have different capacities. Some of you have a little dessert plate, and that's all you can hold on your plate as far as responsibility. Some of us have a salad-sized plate. Some of you somehow have a buffet platter, and I don't know how you do it. You're amazing. But that's okay. That's just how God created us, each with different limited capacities. And so the, the challenge is to remember, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And so as we work and build together for the Lord, what I find is that there are many people who are quick to comment and criticize and complain, but unwilling to contribute. And sometimes those people are the same ones that when they contribute just a little bit, feel like it earns them the right to complain and criticize even more. And so the question is, like Nehemiah, like Jesus, are you willing to get your hands dirty, humbly, to work alongside others sacrificially? And this passage is not just about church and ministry. As you work with people, as you work towards common goals, at school, at your job, in your home, remind yourself when there's work to be done, Colossians 3.23, that I'm not just having to comply with someone else's requests or do things to serve other people. I am really serving, honoring, and revering the Lord. One more application. Let's look at verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, and besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Nehemiah, he has a huge contingent of people and mouths to feed at his dinner table. Every night, 150 officials from Judah as well as it says there are ambassadors, visiting ambassadors from other nations. And so in verse 18, you can imagine that this is a pretty stressful responsibility. And he could simply hand out uh, a Lunchable and maybe <laughs> a juice box to feed each of them. Uh, do something simple to cut costs. But instead, he prepares a feast every day. They roast an entire ox, six sheep, flock of chicken, and he has to restock the wine cellar for them every 10 days, it says in this passage, because he's a generous host. And instead of expensing the meal at the expense of the people, he pays it out of pocket to feed all the staff, all the visiting dignitaries, because he governs compassionately, but he also gives generously. And then in verse 19, he closes with a very short prayer. I ask God to remember 
how I honored and served him by honoring and serving the people with integrity. And so the third way that Nehemiah honors God is with his example of sacrificial hospitality. And I say example, who's the example for? Look back in verse 17. There's a crowd around him at the dinner table, and it does include Jewish officials, and there are visiting dignitaries who are from non-Jewish nations. In other words, this thing that he does around the dinner table every night, it is a testimony to the goodness of God for both the people of God as well as people who are far from God, who do not know him, who do not worship him. And isn't that exactly what Jesus does in his ministry? He spent a lot of his life and his ministry around a dinner table with friends and with enemies like the Pharisees, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with sinners, because all were welcome to taste his hospitality, the hospitality of God, to repent from sin, to experience a good Savior. And in fact, it wasn't just something he did in his ministry, in his lifetime on earth, his earthly ministry. We discover that at the end of history, at the beginning of eternity in Revelations chapter 19, verse 6 through 9, that God welcomes us home by faith in Jesus to the best dinner party of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we celebrate and rejoice with Jesus forever. And so what we see is that hospitality around a dinner table is both an invitation and a reflection of the goodness of God. I think about this man, uh, Scott McCauley. His uh, first Thanksgiving alone was in 1985, and his parents, he was a young man, a young adult, uh, but his parents were recently divorced, and so there was no family get-together for the holidays, and so he was kind of bummed. Uh, he thought that his first Thanksgiving alone, that he would just be heating up a frozen turkey dinner, uh, turning on some football to kind of stifle the silence in his apartment. But this guy, uh, he's like some of you. He is a high, high extrovert, not like me at all. So he hates eating alone. I love to eat alone, but this man hates eating alone. And so he got this idea in his head, maybe a prompting from the Lord. What if... Remember, this is 1985, okay? He took out, what if I took out an ad in the paper and invited just 12 strangers to join me for a Thanksgiving dinner at my church, First uh, First Baptist Church? So he took out this ad, let it run for about maybe a week. People showed up. He just came. He had all the supplies. He didn't know who would come, and people showed up. 12 people showed up. And they, they gathered around this table for turkey and stuffing and pumpkin pie, 12 strangers. And since then, he made, he's made this free feast an annual event for over 33 years. He's been doing this. He's fed widows and widowers, homeless people, college students who couldn't make it home for the holidays. One year, there's an elder, elderly woman who paid for an ambulance to drive her from her nursing home to the church. It turns out that she hadn't been out of the nursing home in over seven years. The first time she's come out in seven years, she arrived decked out in her fanciest clothes, and she had such a wonderful time ministering to her heart. She cried when the dinner was over. Infants have spent their first Thanksgiving with Scott McCulley. More than a few elderly people have sat down for their last Thanksgiving with Scott. 
And during this time, there was a man named Jeff Shanklin, age 65, lives alone. And he has attended every single one of those dinners since Scott started that tradition. And he said, for people like me, with nowhere to go and no one to celebrate with, Scott is my family. It reminds me of something Maya Angelou said, that people will forget what you said and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. In a biblical context, hospitality around a dinner table is a welcoming invitation and a reflection of the goodness of God. And so as we roll into the holidays, you're going to spend a lot of time and money and energy around a dinner table with your close friends and family. And I know that it's both very rewarding, but also very stressful. And so here's my challenge for you. Like Nehemiah, would you consider inviting others, both people who follow Jesus and people who don't, but people who may, not, who may not have a people or a place to go to for the holidays as a testimony of the goodness and the grace of God through your hospitality. And I know many of you, some of you have never invited anyone into your home, at least outside of your family, because it's your personal fortress of solitude <laughs> that you don't want disturbed. May I suggest to you, if you follow Jesus, that that house is not yours, that everything you have belongs to Him. And so would you rethink if you would, um, using it to the reverence of God and re receiving others into it? Perhaps this is a, a small step of integrity with God's resources in the direction of Jesus' character for your life, even when your life or your home are busy and messy. I know your life has a lot of pressures. It reminds me of a, when a submarine comes out of dry dock. Naval officers, they need to assess its hull integrity, whether or not it can survive in the water. And so the first exercise that they do at sea is that they put it through a trial to measure the vessel's performance and its general seaworthiness. And so what they'll do is they'll take the submarine into, uh, to the depths in the ocean, pretty deep out, to test the integrity of its hull. Is it compromised in any way? Because you see what happens is the increased pressure of deep water inevitably reveals any poor welding, any stress cracks, any leaks, because pressure doesn't cause weakness in the integrity, but it reveals it. Like Nehemiah, as you and I serve the Lord, we will also experience times of increased pressure at school, at work, at home, at church, and it will also test your integrity. Will I live for Jesus? Will I demonstrate Jesus? Will I make choices that may be fine and permissible to the world, but compromised and sinful before the Lord? And so I want to challenge you to revere God as you serve Him in your work, in your world, in your family, and in your community, to do what's humbly sacrificial, not just what's personally permissible to you. Now, I know there are times when the pressure in your life is too much and it's hard to be thoughtful. It's hard to uh, avoid uh, 
taking advantage of certain perks in our lives. It's hard for us to be generous with our time and our service. It's hard to be generous with our homes and our resources. The pressure can be very high on you. And when my whole feels too weak, there's bad news and there's good news, at least as far as a boat like a submarine. The bad news is pressure is already hard enough on a ship. But uh, because boats, uh, the outer surface, of course, is made out of steel, what happens when you put steel in water over a long period of time? It rusts. It's destroyed by rust. The whole integrity will be compromised. And so that's the bad news. For you and I, uh, we are like a ship made out of steel. And the re- reality is, with the pressures of life and when we're put into the depths of the water, over time that stress does take a toll. It does rust us. It does compromise our integrity. But here's the good news. For those of you who are uh, nautical by nature, there's a process that saves ships. What they do is they cover the steel with magnesium or zinc in a chemical process, which is totally theological, called sacrificial protection. Because what happens is this chemical that is covering the steel gets broken down, it's destroyed, it's sacrificed to keep the steel from rusting, from being destroyed by water and pressure. And so your hull may be weak, the hull of your integrity. And to save you, Jesus' blood covers us. It's a sacrificial protection. It's broken down in our place as a sacrificial protection against sin and death. It covers us with his humility, his sacrifice, and his life. And so there's a God in heaven who can make you more than what you're capable of on your own. And so may we revere the Lord by living like him, pointing to him with the integrity that comes from him in humility and in sacrifice, maybe even today. Heavenly Father, I don't know how you are speaking to each of us as individuals, but I do know that you are speaking to me for sure, that there are times in life that so many things are happening, so much stress, so much distraction, so much destruction sometimes and devastation happening us happening around us, that it's hard to look at our own personal character, our own personal choices. Some of us, were running so hard and so fast that we don't have time for self-reflection. And so, we take shortcuts. Shortcuts to our character, shortcuts that violate uh, your, your character and your word. God, would you speak to those? Would, you, Holy, would your Holy Spirit unveil that area of our heart and our lives that you want to to heal and to change today. We ask that you would unveil places where we are compromising, where we are rationalizing, because everyone else does it, or I deserve it. Ways that we are not willing to sacrificially do the work with others. It's too hard. Let other people do it. We are not generous with our time, our resources, and our hospitality. God, make us men and women who shine like stars in the heaven, reflecting the glory of Christ. Not because we're so good, but because we have a Savior who is so good, who covers us in his protection, in his sacrifice. May he empower us today to be the men and women that you already say we are. In the beautiful name of Jesus.